This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Welcome, beautiful people. Can you dig it? I definitely can. Welcome to a very special episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse, and today is a special episode for not, well, I guess this really isn't that relevant in terms of the podcast, but this po or this podcast marks 100 blog posts that I have done on this blog. It's actually more than that because I did these things called culture posts earlier on in the 2020s or the 2020s, the year 2020, excuse me, when I had just a lot of things to say just that weren't as like, I, I don't know, of a serious topic. It was kind of a dumb idea. Like I just did an extra post a month to do an extra post a month and it kind of like fell off at the end of the year, which was just not consistent and it, it, it sucked and everything. So I guess it's more than a hundred blog posts, but it is a hundred, it's a hundred blog posts and that's a pretty fucking big deal because if you guys haven't noticed by now, this has been, I mean, I don't, I don't write fluff pieces. I don't do puff pieces. I kind of just, I take a topic, I take it seriously and I try to make it, I try to make it fun, but I also try to make sure that it is, has enough substance to do the program justice and to make your guys' time worth listening to me rant and rave by myself, screaming into the void for however many minutes and however many times you have listened to me throughout my career as a wannabe amateur podcaster. So that being said, I was thinking about this coming up this week. I wanted to do just kind of a normal post, but I thought that, you know, it, and this is not going to be a, a victory lap run of the mill thing. This is not going to be that. If it is that, please stop me and correct me for being a, an asshole, probably. But I wanted to do something that kind of really encapsulated my feelings over the last almost three years that I've been doing this thing. So I started the blog in 2020. I started the podcast in 2021. So it's almost been a full three years since I've done this, or from doing this podcast. It's really been a very interesting social experiment for me in a lot of different ways. And I think that in order to commemorate that, I wanted to think about something that makes me think and makes me really contemplate what this whole process has been like. And it's not going to be a long podcast today. I'm kind of dragging it out and stretching it out here, but it's going to be just my general thought that I have had. I've boiled it down to, I think, a singular one about whether the last three years has been a net positive or a net negative because there's certainly been a lot of both at least when I've been doing all this stuff so without further ado let's get into it the greatest movie seen in the history of cinema occurred fictionally on December 7th 1941 and for some of you that date might sound familiar and it should to all of us frankly that date the day that will forever live in infamy was the day that the Japanese military bombed the United States military base at Pearl Harbor 
launching us into the Second World War and changing the face of the world forever. However, that date was also notable for another reason, and not for being the focal point of yet another shitty Ben Affleck movie. December 7th was also Vito Corleone's birthday. Vito Corleone, otherwise known as The Godfather, was born in the 1890s in Sicily, moving to America when he wasn't yet 10 years old all by himself to escape from a bloodthirsty local mafia chief who desired to kill his entire bloodline. After witnessing his father, mother, and brother be brutally murdered, Vito, then going by his last name of Andolini, left his hometown of Corleone by being smuggled by a trade route to a steamship. After contracting a local disease and quarantining, Vito was taken in by his distant relatives, the Abandados, becoming best friends of their son, Jenko. After trying to make an honest living working as a grocer in the Abandados market, Vito quickly learned that, that the predominantly Italian neighborhood in Hell's Kitchen isn't as honest as he wants to be. Being run by the small-time blackhander named Fanucci, the extortionist forces the Abandados to fire Vito in favor of his nephew by threatening to harm their business. Vito, ever the pragmatist, tells the elder Abandado to step down when he attempts to resist, not wanting the family that has been so good to him to lose everything for him. Left without an honest living, he begins to look elsewhere. Later that evening, Vito is yelled at by a neighbor across the apartment. That neighbor, another small-time criminal named Peter Clemenza, tosses an unknown bag over to him and asks him to hold it on for to hold him to hold on to it for him temporarily. Vito agrees and opens the bag, seeing that it's filled to the brim with illegal firearms. The events of that day begin to marinate in Vito's mind. He realizes that, to get ahead, he might not have to be as honest as he would have liked to be. The next day, Clemenza pays Vito back by helping him steal a rug from a wealthy family to adorn their apartment. The two men, along with another small-timer named Salvatore Tessio, decide to go into business together. They form a small crew that specializes in petty theft of luxury items, most notably dresses. However, as the crew begins to scale their, legitimate, their illegitimate business, Fanucci finds them out through neighborhood contacts and confronts the man whom he forced out of a job. Fanucci, upset that the neighborhood is beginning to turn to someone who commands more respect, threatens Vito with going to the police if he doesn't back down. Vito doesn't, dispatches Fanucci, and takes over the neighborhood, stamping his claim on becoming the biggest up-and-coming crime lord in New York. After establishing the massive oil company using the Abandados contacts in the old country and Jenko's business ties in America, Vito's crime empire begins to scale rampantly. The founding members explode out of poverty, win over the working-class populace that adorns their territory, and begin to enjoy their wealth by expanding their families. Corleone ends up having four children. Sonny, Fredo, Connie, Michael, and, or and Michael, as well as an adopted son, Sonny's best friend named Tom Hagen, and settles in Long Island. Twenty years later, the scene for the Corleone family on that fateful day in 1941 is much different. The children have had little to no struggle in their lives. Life is good. Beautiful china and cutlery decorate the sturdy and tested wooden table. Bountiful amounts of food weigh down the table while wine flows from chalice to cup. Boastful and joyous laughter bounces off the acoustics of the walls. The children and their significant others are all incredibly excited at their father's beautiful cake, their time together, and the upcoming Christmas holiday except for one. The youngest son, Michael, sits unassumingly at the end of the table, barely taking up any space in a room dominated with big personalities. He seems like he does, not, does but does not want to be there. He's here for the primary purpose, to celebrate the man he adores more than anything in the world, but can do without the rambunctiousness and purposelessness of everything else. It almost seems like an annoyance to him, something that he knows he has to do, but takes no pleasure in doing it. 
Michael, unlike the rest of his family, has a reason to feel this way. He wants no part of the life that they live. His brothers are too stuck in the past to know how to adapt to their current surroundings. They want the luxury of the traditional dominance they enjoyed in the old country, while having all the freedom and wealth of America. They don't believe that there's any cost in any of their actions, that they can do as they please. This is a mistake, and a foolish one. Michael, being the smartest and most perceptive, knows this. Michael has put his foot down on which side of the line he wants to draw. He wants to live an American life, not a mafia life. He cares not for braggadocio and deal-making. Instead, he'd rather be like his father was at his age, a man trying to live an honest life. And to his father's credit, he did what he could to encourage this. Vito knew what Michael knew. They both had a common understanding that neither of them wanted this lifestyle for the youngest son. He was too good for it, too pure, too respectable. He could still be saved. To do this saving, Vito angled and positioned Michael to go into university at the prestigious Dartmouth College, an Ivy League school that's a pipeline of talent for some of the greatest kingmakers in the history of America. Michael wanted, or Vito wanted Michael to be a politician, a governor or a senator that would naturally place him as far away from his line of work as possible. There's no further safe haven from the maw of organized crime than that of the organization that fights it, at least in theory. The conversation at the dinner table soon turns to the attack, to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Sonny, the bloviating and passionate eldest son who wants nothing more to than to inherit the family business, blasts the Japanese for daring to attack the country on his father's birthday. Tom, the pragmatist, logically states that the United States should have expected it after the oil embargo backed them into a corner. Fredo, the cherubic and meek middle child, comments quietly, voicing no opinion of his own. Connie, the spoiled and upstart wannabe mob queen, butts in and yells at Sonny for talking, talking politics at the dinner table. Michael, per usual, says nothing. After Tessio sets the beautiful cake down, he lets the table know that men are enlisting into the military in the tens of thousands. Sonny blows his top again, calling them, quote, saps for risking their lives for strangers that they've never met. This jab, surprisingly, is the one that gets Michael to finally say something. He calmly confronts his brother, saying that the men who enlisted should be commended for sacrificing so much for something that they believe in. Sonny tells Michael that America is in family, while Michael comes back and says that he doesn't feel that way. After conceding to losing by yelling, to, yelling at Michael to leave and join the so-called saps in the fight against the Axis powers, Michael responds with the unthinkable. I did. The room, once so lively, goes silent. A walnut shell shatters by Fredo's hand, breaking the silence in the most lovely and ironic way possible. Michael sits back and smokes a cigarette, looking at his brother with a combined look of pride and sadness. Sonny's mouth hangs open, completely stunned. Tom flashes a look of bewildered disappointment. The only one who responds positively is Fredo, who sticks his hand out and congratulates him. But before Michael can shake it, Sonny jerks it away, sending everyone but the brothers out of the room. Tom, the attorney, sticks to the nuts and bolts of the situation. He states that Vito has worked incredibly hard to get Michael deferred service so that he could go to college and not be drafted into the military. Michael responds that he didn't want it. Tom tries again, stating that he and Vito had talked privately multiple times about Michael's future. And this statement is the one that triggers Michael out of his aloofness. My future, he asks Tom. Tom smiles and nods back at him. You talk to my father about my future. Tom, finally starting to get exasperated, tells Michael that his father has high hopes for him, ones that don't involve going overseas and fighting in the military. 
Michael calmly rejects this, telling Tom that he has his own plans for his future. Sonny, still in disbelief, calls him stupid for breaking the news on their father's birthday. The arrival of Vito to his surprise party interrupts the awkward tension between the brothers. Connie calls him into the foyer to greet, greet him, and they dutifully follow their sister's commands. Except for Michael. Surprise! Booms from the foyer. Sound of a joyful homecoming follows Vito, Vito's arrival is engulfed in chants if he's a jolly good fellow. Michael doesn't react to any of it. He sits at the table, ashes his cigarette, and stares blankly into the opposite wall, constantly reflecting on whether this, or any, of his own decisions, made on his own volition, will be worth the pain he endures of alienating everything he's ever wanted. As I said before, this podcast marks the 100th entry on DontReadThisBlog.com, almost 34 months after it was started back in January of 2020. I went into that first post with much optimism about what would come from it. I think we all did during that time. A new decade was upon us. New promises were made, the most important ones being by ourselves to ourselves. I didn't know what would become. I just knew that something was calling me to start. What I got in return, looking back on the previous 99 posts, was something else entirely. My work on this forum, as well as in my podcast and book, has consumed much of my life outside of my work. It alienated me from a large number of my friends, social opportunities, and general freedom to spend my time doing work that doesn't use my brain as much. It's directly taken away from my ability to earn more money in my day job. It's caused me to strain my relationships with coworkers, family members, and friends. It's got me in trouble on more than a few occasions. A good portion of what I've written on this blog has made me depressed and sad. It's not easy to talk about the suffering that a lot of people have faced, particularly over the last three years. It's not easy to see that much of what people have been told about a lot of very important things has been a lie. It's not easy to grapple with the understanding that most of the people that most of the other people rely on to be heroes are actually not those things at all. It would have been a lot easier if I had never taken the trek of buying my website and done things haphazardly. It would have freed up a lot of time and certainly a lot of money. I probably would have gone out a lot more, met a lot of very nice people, and lived the life that most soon-to-be 25-year-olds live. And it would have been nice, I think. If I wouldn't have done the blog, I wouldn't have had the idea to write my book, the roots of all which were found in a sense-deleted post on this forum. The tens of thousands of dollars that I probably would have never hoped to see return from what I invested in it would have probably have gone towards saving up for a house, which are pretty damn expensive in Austin these days. Or they could have bought me a couple more Jack and Cokes on Rainy, which have been a decent enough consolation prize. If I wouldn't have done any of these things, I wouldn't have noticed how much I truly suck at a lot of them. I wouldn't have gotten depressed when I see the single-digit number of podcast listeners every week, or the less than five number of people who read any of my blog posts, about half of which being my parents out of either nervousness or pity. I could have stayed where I was and breached new ground, more familiar ground, where people have tread before me. I think often about the decision to do all of these things I've done in the last three years regarding my media and my content. In many ways, I feel like a slave to my own creation, having to keep creating, producing, and writing simply because I've conditioned my life so much so towards that routine. In more ways, I'm scared of what's to come should I stop. It's hard enough to go into uncharted territory once. It's even worse to go back on a similar track with next to nothing to show for your accomplishments. I don't know whether to consider the past three years a success or a failure. In many ways, it's a combination of both. I did accomplish what I wanted to. I started a blog, spun up a podcast, and published a book. Those are all three things that I've wanted to do and three things that I think did decently well at. I've kept consistent and followed through with each one of them. I haven't quit, even though it would have been much easier to do so. However, 
As we've discussed as nauseum on all my forums, expectations are a motherfucker. This is a lot harder than I expected it to be. I often feel like a relic, that I got to this game a bit too late, that I'm too old-fashioned, too hardened, and too burdened by other work to keep up the pace of innovation necessary to make an impact at this broad of a scale. I feel like I should have some momentum at this point, even though it's not even close to being something that I, or anyone else for that matter, deserves. I've fallen victim to the expectations conundrum a lot. I want to have high expectations for the things that I do, but know that as soon as I adopt that mindset, a shitstorm of disappointment will inevitably knock me on my ass. I also want to stay on the strong side of the toughness gap, knowing that the ability to maintain my sovereignty is the key to staying strong when nothing seems to be going my way. The conflict that I feel is similar, at least I think, to people setting sail a very long time ago on an even longer journey. The beginning is exciting as shit. You're ready to find new land, break new ground, and come back with some badass stories about how you came, saw, and conquered. You pass a couple of cases of booze and your weapons of choice, raise the sails, and cast off with a broken bottle of champagne, waving to people in the distance as soon as you set off on your venture. It's the middle part that's the motherfucker, though. This is when you're not close to where you want to be, but yet so far gone that you can't see where you started. This is where you have to improvise. This is where you have to make shit up. Tell people that you do not have it figured out when you have no fucking clue that you have it figured out when you have no fucking clue if you do or not. You're even second guessing your destination. Is what I seek actually going to be what I think? What if it's better? What if it's worse? The hardest part of this for me, and I hope the sailors, is the doubt that creeps in. Not necessarily the doubt that they will reach the destination per se, but the doubt that everything they did will all end up amounting to nothing that the time, effort, and whatever other investments were made in doing the things they so anticipated could have been better and spent and more well-purposed solutions. Things that weren't as risky or time-consuming or all-encompassing. Things that would have provided more benefit for less risk. And there's certainly an argument to be made for this. It's borderline haunted me for the entire time of embarking on whatever this thing is. What if I should be doing something else? What if that other thing is better? Other people my age aren't doing this. They're doing healthy things like meeting people, forming relationships, saving money, and getting shit-faced on a Saturday watching college football. They're certainly not citing sources from a blog post that maybe 10 people will read. Only a dumbass would do that. That's stupid. That's a waste of time. Maybe it is. Maybe I'll look back on this time and really regret all the things that I've done and all the time I've spent and the money I've wasted. I don't give a shit what anyone says. There are such a thing as regrets in life. There is such a thing as a bad decision. There is such a thing as a wasted experience or a stupid idea or a terrible pursuit. This is the real world. We live in reality, with real action and even more vivid consequences. To pretend that they don't exist would be to ignore reality as it's currently constructed, which is never a wise decision. But there's also the other side of the coin that must be equally examined, and the side that I fall on more days than not, even though both are plentiful. There's something to be said about paying your dues in any venture that you go down. You usually have to toil in obscurity for a long time before you can even think about popping out in a major way to help people. You have to let other people step on you with their greatness, or at least relevance, before you can have your moment in the sun. It is these times that build the truly great people, the ones that will eventually rise to prominence. No one who became truly great at anything was ever soft. They're all callous, rough, and tough people, who have most likely been shit and spit on more times than most people can stomach. Not only have they experienced doubt and self-critiques, they've lived in them. They've opened themselves up to incredibly, incredibly far to pain and suffering and felt astronomical amounts of both. At least, I think, I hope, I'm on my way to doing that now. 
I think I've tested that out with what I've done so far, even if the sample size has been small. At least people don't seem to hate it. That's as good of a start as any. At least with people not hating your work, you have an opportunity to win them over, to start building something. And if I'm not, if I'm wrong about what I just stated, I think I'll be better for it. There's nothing wrong with becoming a tougher person. There's nothing wrong with teaching yourself how to be disciplined. There's nothing wrong with you becoming better at the craft you truly enjoy doing. Anyone who says otherwise, somebody does not want the best for you. They want to keep you where they are, because that's how they like you. There's not a lot that is inherently wrong with that either. It's what's comfortable for them, what's convenient for them. But what's most likely right for you is all of those things. So after 100 blogs, 100 attempts to do what I stated to do in the first one, that's about the best advice I can give you. That's how I can measure if it was worth it. Even though doing the blogs has taken a lot away from me, I have a strong conviction that it has given me something as well. Something not quite tangible, but not quite intangible either. So, in short, was this worth it? I don't know. That's a conclusion I've come up with the conclusion in nearly all of my blogs, podcasts, and books. I don't know the answer to a lot of stuff. That's done two things for me. Inspire me and deject me. That's what a lot of life is, in a sense. Constantly searching, growing, improving, without really knowing or tracking if you're doing anything of the sort. But it's better to do something than to not do something in most cases, at least in my opinion. I do lots of stuff. That's never changed and probably won't change for a while. I don't know if that stuff will be this, but I know that I will still be doing stuff. I have exciting things planned, all of which will be going over in the state of Don't Do This Media address in December. But until then, there is more stuff that has to be done. Maybe that stuff will be more worth it than before. I'll probably be a lot like Michael Corleone, no matter what the scenario turns out to be. A lot of alone time, a lot of listening, a lot of watching the chaos of life unfold around me. Me as the aloof and impartial observer until something strikes me that's worth being passionate about. I'll take the pain in silence, take a deep breath, and keep moving. Because bearing your burden in silence, one where no one is going to help you, is far better than bearing none at all. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?